those of us who do want to have effective lives navigating a world of radical change, I think we will want to be highly educated. We'll want to be able to think on our feet. We'll, we, we want to be extremely adaptable. We want to be able to understand lots of different cultural perspectives. We'll want to be able to craft our own sense of meaning in the face of all this conflict of meaning. Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. In episode 37, I had Hunter Motts of the Mixed Mental Arts podcast on this show. We had a great conversation about the unmanageability of knowledge in the information age and how it's going to take new forms of knowledge construction and new educational institutions for us to even begin to sift through the volumes of data that we are creating and the insights that we are extracting from them. No matter how fond I am of reminding everyone that we almost certainly live in a digital dark age when compared to our inconceivably data-rich descendants, it's almost certain that when they're creating their pixelated low bitrate reconstructions of what we call the present day, one of the things that they will know for sure is that we were absolutely insane in our practices and customs when it comes to the way that we raise the next generation. We seem totally preoccupied as a society with carrying over these painfully obsolete processes and educational standards whereby children were groomed to become good factory workers 150 years ago. And like so many things in this day and age, we're going to have to pull ourselves out of this mess by our own bootstraps, Baron von Munchausen style. Because the fact of it is that I, and probably you, and everybody listening to this, except for the lucky few, were subject to this precise educational paradigm. When I compare this to the radically empowered, intelligent, and dignified new ways we will evolve to ready people for a world of exponential change and invite them into the process of dancing with that change creatively. Well, friends, that's when I am glad to know that there are people out there like Michael Strong, the visionary educator who leaves awesome and unconventional new schools in his wake like some kind of Johnny Appleseed of human brains. And I'm pretty sure that the educational systems of the future that I want to live in start with him and people like him, which is why I'm super excited to finally get this episode out to you. It was recorded in February. But first, a huge and loving thanks to the 130 Patreon supporters that help me keep this podcast going. Justin Vey, Chad Dugas, you're my new Patreon supporters this week, and I thank you deeply. And an eschaton's worth of gratitude to David Kelly and Transhumanity.net for being Future Fossils Podcast's first featured sponsor. Transhumanity.net is devoted to creating a hub for excellent educational and news resources, as well as creative media about the future of our species and what comes after. I've been subscribed to their email list for years now, and it's just a constant feed of thoughtful philosophy and interesting politics and cool speculative writing on living architecture and the cyborg body. It's just all kinds of amazing stuff. If you found this show through transhumanity.net, thank you so much for tuning in. Dig through the archives and you'll find some really cool discussions about the ethics of digital entities and how to navigate the proliferating metaverse of augmented and virtual and mixed realities. Talk about radical bioengineering and all sorts of emancipatory, terrifying, uncomfortable, blissful, freaky, brainy, weird shit on this show. And I'm super glad to have you on board. 
If you'd like access to the private feed, my buddy Mitch Mignano, guest on episode 57, called an avalanche of ecodelic content. You can sign up at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield and rest assured that your money is going to the noble cause of facilitating vital conversations about how to encourage and inspire the most ambitious evolutionary projects that we can. One more thing before I plug you into this fun chat with Michael Strong. If you're not already in the Future Fossils Facebook discussion group, hop on in, join the pool. It's warm in here. We share awesome news several times a day. It's an active community for which I am very grateful. All right, everybody, enjoy this conversation with Michael Strong. I have complete confidence that spirit of this conversation is capable of like leading it where it may. That's kind of where, where I put the trust in this is in the, uh, choir angel as it were. Perfect. Perfect. Well, um, I can talk, I can certainly talk about a lot of things for a long time. So tell me where you want to start. Well, I would love to start with the map of the problematique, right? Which is we are here at this particular moment. We, we recognize a, a specific set of challenges. If we are to continue as, as a species, as a society and, um, you know, and you are an educational innovator and you are someone who supports Socratic practice and entrepreneurship. And I feel like that's, that's the place to start is by understanding the role that education and entrepreneurship has in shaping the people and the institutions that will carry us through this transition uh, in not only a, you know, safe, not, not safe, right? Because nothing is safe. Creativity isn't safe, but Mm -hmm in a sustainable way or in a, you know, a way that doesn't result in catastrophe. Right. Well, great. So let me start then by saying that um, I look forward to the creation of what I call an experience economy, and it's not original to me by any chance sense, but um, we're mostly, everybody is working all day, every day to create value for others by means of creating higher quality experiences. So I believe in entrepreneurs of happiness and well-being, now, many people have a very materialistic notion around entrepreneurship, and of course, uh, in the industrial age, we needed more cars and more boats and more houses, and in, uh, for the six billion poorest people on earth, we still need a lot of that. But I, I see in the developed world, uh, many, of, many of us have enough stuff, and many of us are, I would say, going more for a quality of life and high-quality experiences. And so I'm very much a believer in Maslow's hierarchy. I think that um, we, most of us in the developed world really don't need more stuff and we don't become happier by means of more stuff. We become happier by means of high quality experience, by leading purpose-driven lives. I would say by doing good things with other people, by creating value for ourselves and others in ways that are joyful. So going back to entrepreneurship, then I'll get back to education. Um, I, I love creating. I think, I think a lot of people love creating. And, you know, creating can mean a little drawing on a chalkboard or something. But I think creating better ways of living is the most exciting, fun task for the 21st century. And creating better ways of living is, could be very diverse. You know, certainly with schools. I, I think of secondary school in particular Middle and high school is more or less prison for about 80% of students. You know, maybe 20% of students like it and they go off and, you know, become the world that replicates uh, regular school. But for most kids, apparently there's a whole series of YouTube videos on I hate school. And some of these are really heartbreaking videos of kids just so desperate. I've known kids that are suicidal, depressed, so forth because of school. So in terms of an experience economy, I'm going to create happy, positive, creative experiences for young people so that they will go on to create happy, productive, creative experiences for more people. Because I think a lot of our dysfunction in our society comes from the fact that 
We have uh, people that are not getting their fundamental needs met as adolescents, and they go off, and some of them have diagnosable mental illness or addictions. Some of them um, have unmet ego needs, such that it's all consumerism and materialism. Some of them go off and, uh, you know, have domination needs and go off and do bad things to people through domination. None of this is necessary. I think if people, if more young people could learn how to become creative, productive, uh, purpose-driven citizens of the world, um, we'd make a lot of progress. So I I could go a million directions, but I'll pause there because it looks like you've got various questions bubbling up. Well, yeah. um, When we met, we met at the Voice Nexit Garden here in in Austin, which is a... uh, For listeners, that's it's kind of a a monthly little uh, breakaway teaser of this conference voice and exit that happens here every year and and you presented on on education and entrepreneurship there and you told this story about i can't remember where you said that this happened but there was the story about this this uh, up up north somewhere maybe in canada or so there's a big strong boy who alaska was, i don't yeah, he's like yeah. bullying his classmates and so forth and you were saying that in an earlier community, you know, in, in its sort of tribal community, that this this young man would have been prized for his strength. He would have been recognized as a warrior, and that we don't know how in our current system to integrate that correctly. We don't know how to how to recognize everyone for the diversity of their strengths, and and so we've created this this mess in which you know everyone is sort of required to conform so like how, how do we begin to unwind that so that's a great question so backing up a little bit and what all the frame i'll use for this is the notion of paleo education so of course paleo diet and exercise and or you know activity we shouldn't even once we call it exercise we're no longer paleo but um <laughs> people have realized we evolved for millions of years in these tribal groups that had certain characteristics. And there was a lot of variation in those. It wasn't one specific kind of tribal group. But by any measure, what we're doing now is so, the way we're living now is so different from that. And one of the things, as somebody who spent most of my life around adolescence, that struck me is in a traditional tribe, young people were raised in a radically coherent uh, moral framework, moral, emotional, spiritual framework, where Um, Not only were they taught the skills they needed to survive so they could hunt and gather kind of gendered male-female on that uh, axis, um, but they also knew how to uh, be excellent in that community. So there were very clear norms about what it meant to be a good citizen, a good tribal member. There were elders, and the elders were respected, and there was a whole um, universe that made sense for young people growing up in terms of how they could be excellent, starting at uh, basically puberty, 13 or whatever, how they could be excellent in that community. And those excellences were very much in alignment with human nature because, of course, the young, strong men would be prized as hunters and um, you know, the community had to function in a certain way. So you needed to have people who were, uh, it was a matter of life or death to have functioning community. Meanwhile, school is a very, very narrow band designed for certain people, you know, people that are good tests. I was good at tests. I could, you know, memorize and forget like the best best of them. But um, that didn't do justice both to the talents of diverse human beings, but also there's this moral chaos where uh, I think a lot of the consumerism and addictive behaviors of young people are due to the fact that they, there is no sense of virtue or excellence. And of course, as soon as we start talking about virtue or excellence, then um, you know the, everybody will, you know, the people who are very Christian would have a very specific one. Maybe Jews and Muslims would have different ones. Secular liberals might have some. Feminists might have a certain one. Um, you, you can imagine a, a gay tribe that was all about certain kind of gay masculinity. Um, and so part of it is, I think, I see a retribalization of society. Instead of having one size fits all where we say we must all do it like this, I think that if we allowed everybody to educate their children as they want, gradually we would see some young people being educated to be extraordinarily intellectual, and that's great, others to be extraordinarily entrepreneurial. Sales, turns out there are a lot of great sales jobs, design, art and design, but pragmatic design that's valuable in the real world. I don't know all of the different paths, but... 
I know that uh, a large number of young people are suffering. About one third of American adolescents are on prescription medication. About half of those are psychoactive in the sense of either ADHD medication, antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications. I think any society where we're medicating a third of our you know, young people, that's the prime of life when we're healthiest and strongest and best is a catastrophe. It's just an absolute catastrophe. Um, suicide, adolescent suicide, is about three times what it was in the 50s. So in general, public health has improved over the decades. You know, we have uh, lower rates of all sorts of contagious diseases. But uh, behavioral disorders, mental health and behavioral disorders, are at an all-time high and growing worse and worse and worse. So I see um, finding ways to allow lots of different people, and you might create a different school than I would, Totally cool. Go for it. You know, lots of different ways to raise young people to be healthy, happy, and purpose-driven. And I, I believe we urgently need that. Mm. So in, in one of your talks on uh, Socratic practice, mm-hmm. which I like just as a distinction, I like that, that you talk about it as an ongoing and iterative thing like a violin practice, that it's not just mm-hmm. a single session of inquiry. In that talk, emphasizing the importance of self-determinant thinking and what I guess like Harvard developmental psychologist Robert Keegan calls the movement from like a third order rule-based construction of external authority to a fourth order independent derivation of value systems. And mm-hmm. that, you, that, you, that you become the author sort of of your own biography, which seems like a very... Uh, important developmental crucible for people in that secondary schooling age that you're talking about and frankly something that is not really being managed very well by the system as it is such that we have lots of 30 40 and 50 year olds running around in our world who have not actually uh, crossed that particular Rubicon the situation that you're talking about now, a situation where we sort of like allow a hundred flowers to bloom and allow mm. this like diversity of educational models, um, it seems that that comes at the cost of a certain kind of turbulence in the sense that like when you get the Protestant Reformation, you lose the authority of the Pope, but then suddenly, you know, there, there are all of these competing worldviews and these weird little messianic death cults and stuff that spring up all over Europe. And we're, we're at this strange time in history where the crisis of legitimacy that is allowing projects like your uh, co-school here in Austin, mm-hmm. you know, projects where we can begin to, to play around with these alternative uh, pedagogical structures and so on processes. It's coming at the expense of sort of the, the decay of authority. And I'm, I'm curious, where, you know, how you, how you see us navigating that boundary sure. wall. Lots of interesting, rich stuff there. So I'll go back to an anecdote that was very formative. I used to lead, I used to train teachers in public schools to lead Socratic seminars. And um, one point in Alaska also, a woman came up to me and she said, your questions cause confusion. Confusion comes from Satan. Therefore, what you're doing is satanic. And I'm going to get you out of the public school. And she did. Uh, you know, and there are a lot of school districts where 10, 15 activist fundamentalist Christians can destroy sex ed, evolution, the teaching of evolution. It can destroy Socratic inquiry, whatever. And so at that point, I realized, you know, and and then I went on, I tried to give her this uh, utilitarian explanation. I said, oh, but your children will need higher order thinking skills in the 21st century. And she said, my husband works on an oil platform. He doesn't need higher order thinking skills. I'm a housewife. I don't need higher order thinking skills. Um, you know, and so I'm like, okay, so we don't have any, anything in common. So my, my sense is, God bless them, let them go. Let them go do their own thing. Meanwhile, those of us who do want to have effective lives navigating a world of radical change, I think we will want to be highly educated. We'll want to be able to think on our feet. We'll, we, we want to be extremely adaptable. We want to be able to understand lots of different cultural perspectives. Um, we'll want to be able to craft our own sense of meaning in the face of all this conflict of meaning. Going way back, you know, under in ancient Egypt, the pharaoh was God. Um, I think we are, we evolved to be highly hierarchical animals. And yet, um, I'm very interested in the rise of independent thought, and even Julian Jaynes' uh, rise of consciousness through independent thought, where once you have conflicting moral authorities, and in a traditional tribe, again, you would never have conflicting moral authorities. Or very only in a very, you know, that elder might disagree with that elder, but on, on relatively small ways. You wouldn't have 
abortion is murder versus abortion is a you know human right for women. <laughs> really different. Um, you might have you know we interpret the elder teaching this way or that. But now we live in such a morally chaotic universe. I think um, unless one wants to go back to a fundamentalist sort of safe haven, and some people do, and again, I don't think we should force them to be other than what they want to do. And it happens there is you know fundamentalism in Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism. I'm sure there are probably fundamentalist Buddhists in some sense. You know that that impulse to to withdraw from the chaos of modernity is huge because it's really hard to deal with the chaos of modernity, whether it's you know moral, intellectual, spiritual beliefs or whether it's just pragmatically, how do I make a, make a living or even relationship-wise? You know, the norms around relationships are all over the place right now. Um, and so I think either you know, people retreat back into their cocoons of certainty uh, and deep moral coherence that we involved in. The Amish you know, have been doing it for centuries. The Mennonites, you know, in their own ways, the Mormons. Or, I think for many of the rest of us, we wanted to become incredibly adaptable. And so I see much of the secondary school curriculum that I describe as Socratic as really the development of identity and agency, or in Jungian sense, individuation. And Kagan, you know, is another way of, there are lots of different ways to talk about it, but once one realizes one can no longer rely on external authority and one takes responsibility for making sense of the world and really responsibility for one's life, then education is fundamentally different. It's not about getting the right answer on the history exam. It's about, okay, I want to have an effective, meaningful life for me. These are my relationships. These are my beliefs. These are my commitments. Uh, even this is my physiology. How do I manage that? And uh, I, I think it can take years and years. As you say, many 30 and 40-year-olds don't have it. Um, but I think in adolescence, our, our students spend a lot of time um, thinking, talking, um, and experimenting in lots of ways. And I think um, that's that's an appropriate way to develop an identity for the 21st century so that they'll be able to drop in anywhere and, and thrive, hopefully. Mm. So, you know, in listening to you talk about this, I wonder, you know, there's, there is, because of the contours of our media surround, you know, the nature of, of our networked environment now, there is enormous pressure to collaborate to join into larger groups to form a meta organism you know to participate in in the body politic it seems like it's you know moving towards this asymptote of people with brains linked by chips and so on and mm -hmm. in that space we're moving this this focus on an individuated self into this like digestive acid of the internet and mm -hmm. I, you know, I wonder uh, how you understand the the way that this context is both uh, supportive and challenging to the process of individuation, where it becomes unclear sometimes whether it's the pressure to conform or the desire to connect. So great question. So I'm going to go back and. Um you know, one can be pessimistic and say it's hopeless and, you know, Facebook, Google, and Amazon will rule us for the rest of eternity. I don't <laughs> think so. But I can certainly see the case to be concerned about that sort of thing. Um, I've been concerned about electronic addictions for decades. I mean, I often say the best thing about my own education is I was raised in northern Minnesota with bad TV reception. So even TV is addictive. You know, many, many people grew up watching 20, 30 hours a week of TV. And then video games can be very addictive. And now beyond that, we've got the internet and social media and so forth. And it's all, and it's designed to be addictive. You know, you've got super smart people at Facebook and a ton of money designing to make it addictive. On the other hand, um, I think people also love connection. We're starved for connection. So one of the things, one of the ways in which I think the Socratic practice works is it's face-to-face -face human conversation. And the students love it. They long face-to-face -face human conversation. They actually need some training to make it always or more consistently productive and um, positive. But with a little bit of practice, we actually can become great at, you know, talking with one another. Voila, in real life. There's another practice in Austin, and not just in Austin, San Francisco Boulder, called circling, which is more about, you know, being present to your feelings. Joshua Zader, a good friend of mine, describes it as relational meditation. So as opposed to meditation being a solitary activity where, you know, you go in the Buddha cell and try to seek mindlessness, mindfulness, 
mindlessness, <laughs> funny Freudian slip there. Um, one, one perceives oneself and the other in real time in relationship. Um, and I, I, part of the experience economy is I think that uh, there will be some people that are plugged into the TVs and computers and gadgets and whatever and, and drugs. I mean, I, I, I see, um, you know, being drugged, whether prescription or non-prescription, as an analog to the electronic addictions. But there will be other people, subcultures of people that go really deep into human connection of various sorts, into connection with nature of various sorts. Um, and I see those subcultures as the future. So uh, I guess I have a great... Um, Faith in you know a lot of dystopian novels have the the small cadre of people that want the truth and real human life and love with all its pain and all of that. So I don't think we're quite in the deep dystopia, but I think our hope, my hope, certainly is, and these subcultures that are bubbling up all over the place. You know, even yoga, people make fun of how consumerist yoga is. Yes, it's not what the ancient Indian yogis were doing by a long shot, and yet it's people wanting physical activity and and something that's very peaceful and serene and there's an appetite for something different so i'm very generous as long as people are moving in the right direction i'm, I'm very hopeful and generous and i think we just need to validate it for more people most people are frankly sheep they do whatever everybody else is doing but as we have subcultures where it's normal to behave in different ways and hopefully ways that are healthier to the human spirit and more enjoyable ultimately i think there will be abundant uh people moving in the direction of health and well-being. Mm. So this, this <laughs> talking about you know most people are sheep, or as a friend of mine calls them, bowlers. Like the, mm-hmm. you know watching, just looking down the the lanes of the bowling alley. You know people moving through the going through the motions. You know, yep. And it really is. It really is so uh, ingrained in us biologically. Like you said, you know this this hierarchical thinking. You know, we all of the ways that we we look to the taller person in the room, you know, or the like the more handsome or seemingly intelligent person, and mm-hmm. you know all the recent research on the ways that we are consulting other people before voicing what we believe to be our own opinions, mm-hmm. and and so is it? I mean, is this a thing that you? you believe deserves to be attacked directly in adults that this is a, that this is a thing that that really ought to be sort of worked out or or have you just sort of emphasized training the next generation of people on that one so so rather than say attacked i i, I was my theme is criticized by creating so rather than attacked i think the more space we can make for individuality and respect for people's individual paths, the better. And so I love Austin's Keep Austin Weird. Uh, it does create space for individuality. One of the things I love about the San Francisco Bay Area is no matter how weird you are here, there's somebody weirder. Yes. <laughs> you can totally guarantee it. But I, I think in, in lots of ways, when I say developing identity and agency, those are just words without a lot of meaning. But ultimately it means one is free from uh, what one is afraid other people might be thinking. And I think we can be very proactive at all levels in terms of respecting people for being who they are, even when they're very different from us, even when it doesn't make sense. Um, I am instinctively against uh, enforced conformism. It's one of the reasons I hate the whole you know, politically correct movement. You know, If somebody believes something you know, outrageous, I'd rather hear it. I want to hear who they are authentically, and then we can talk about it. But, you know, even, even eating disorders with teenage girls, which is a horrible epidemic, there's this notion, oh, I have to be like all of these other images and so forth, and it's killing, killing young women. Um, I want everybody really to be who they are. Dolly Parton once said, um, find out who you are and do it on purpose. <laughs> and I love that. Um, you know, I, I think the more of us, we, you, people, people often say that one of the great things about being old is you don't give a shit about what other people think anymore. And I think the more we can be ourselves, it doesn't mean we can't be respectful. Uh, you know, I don't want to hurt somebody's feelings just to be rude. On the other hand, um, I think we'll, we'll be happier as we can explore ourselves in subcultures. And I say subcultures because there are places that are very, very conformist. Um, but I like the deliberate cultivation of subcultures in celebration of individuality. Uh, you know, mutual respect, but individuality. 
kind of reminds me of Pierre Teilhard de Chardin saying hyper collectivization leads to hyper personalization and that, you know, the more complex our society or like the larger our frame of reference, the more intricate our systems of, of like social, economic, cultural, psychological interdependence, the more roles we have created for ourselves in this world to the point where today, uh, I mean, yeah, it seems like most of my friends can't even succinctly describe what they do for a living because yep. it's so idiosyncratic and bizarre and hyphenated. And I'm, and I'm, I'm curious if you see that as, as a, a, a trend moving into a, a world in which maybe we have, you know, one job per person, you know, that it's like just totally individuated. Well, uh, one job per person is sort of, sort of the stream. I'm going to go at it from a slightly different perspective, which is, um, and this goes into the experience economy. I'm fascinated with the development of new and different and fascinating aesthetics. So, you know, you have a certain aesthetic for your, for your podcast. There's a certain aesthetic in every restaurant, every retail organization. I once knew somebody who um, was into test tube static. You know, they take 1950s test tubes uh, from amplifiers, and um, each one had a characteristic static. And they, apparently there were some test tubes that had a better static than you know, for me, it's just like noise. But, um, you know, and w- with wine, onophiles love certain kinds of wines. And now we, we see the aesthetics of scotch and rye and, you know, tequila and yada, 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 yada. But I, I think what's great about that is in a, in a different way, it's people discovering new and better ways to enjoy life. And so, uh, you know, there are these disputes as to whether, uh, you know, should we regard autism as a disability or not? Forget it. You know, people are different. Uh, let's have an aesthetic of what's it like to be an amazing person in this way. And back in the you know twentieth century, they may have caused that autistic. I don't care what they called it back then. They, you know, they used to call um, you know a lot of what women did hysterics in the nineteenth century. Uh, let, let's find ways to enjoy life and enjoy each other and and refine endlessly. For a while, I practiced Tai Chi with a um, a Taiwanese master. And there were you know, different sorts of internal experiences that one would experience over time. And I could see you know, this whole internal world that I'd never experienced before and would never have known existed had I not studied this internal Tai Chi. And I just got the tiniest bit of it. But I can imagine uh, finding ways to experience my own body in new and different ways and a whole aesthetic around that. So is it... Um, you know, everybody have a different job. I don't know, but in terms of beauty, you know, one of the career tracks I, I like to promote is cool, beautiful resorts around the world. I think a lot of people, when they think economic growth, again, they have this you know negative, destructive sorts of things. What if it's uh, we have ten times as many glorious eco resorts around the world? And 10 times as many wonderful places where you could go into the jungles of Gabon and really see the elephants and their natural habitat from an invisible structure where you watched, got to watch the babies nursing and everything. And it was completely uh, positive for both the elephants and us. I don't know if some place exists like that, but if it doesn't, why shouldn't it? You know, I, I see a lot of really wonderful experiences to be had. And so when I see... Um, the world going forward, we need to find a way to internalize the environmental costs so that we're not actively damaging things. But beyond that, some some people sort of see, oh, we need to shrink the human population or we need to basically stop everything. There's a sort of stasis notion. I don't believe in stasis at all. I think human beings, especially individuated human beings, are radical creators and we want to enjoy life. And so I think we need to envision a future which is all about radical creation of new and better ways to enjoy life with each other in ways that don't harm each other and the environment. And I think there are an infinite number of those. And specialty coffee and whiskeys are the most banal, banal, banal tip of the iceberg of that. Um, but, you know, cooler interpersonal experiences, cooler, you know, internatural, in, internatural experiences, made that one up, um, you know, cool aesthetic experiences that we don't even know yet. Uh, I could imagine that a hundred years from now, people will be enjoying life way more than most of us can imagine, and they'll look at pity with us, you know, back in 2018, and the um, pathetic, brutal kind of lives we led. I'm sure you've seen that famous clip of Louis C.K. 
on Conan O'Brien talking about how everything's, everything's amazing. amazing. Nobody's yeah, happy. One of my favorite clips. One of my favorite clips. Yeah, and you know, and you alluded to that in one of your TED talks. This this question of like, well, how like where are we on the curve? You know, how grateful should we be right now for everything mm-hmm. that you know for the for this mountain of bones that we're standing on? And yeah. you know, it's it is a good question because on you know you look over from where I'm standing, I, I look at, on one side, I see Steven Pinker and the better angels of our nature and this, mm-hmm. this sort of self congratulatory argument, you know, that we're on this curve to betterness. And then, you know, you've got on the other end of it, you've got somebody like Chris Ryan, you know, author of civilized to death. who's making the case that, that we have created a sort of Calcutta zoo for ourselves that not only have we domesticated ourselves, we've done so in a way that looks sort of it, it doesn't actually resemble our natural habitat you know and and we're we're out of sync with everything now and so how grateful should we be i mean obviously this is this is a uh, an open-ended socratic process right so i'm not i'm sure, not going to sure. defer so, to your authority on this but sure so so first of all um you know my wife is from senegal uh africa one of the you know 30 poorest countries on earth and we spend time there regularly. Um, and I would say, uh, on the one hand, there is a, a wellness to the culture there. The culture there is really warm and healthy and engaged. And I do think something has been lost. So I totally want to acknowledge the, um, you know, just in mental illness, they don't have the, the adolescent uh, dysfunction that we have in the U.S. Teens, they're mostly, you know, healthy, happy, loving young people becoming young adults uh, and becoming mature much faster and taking responsibilities. In some cases, of course, that means women getting pregnant at a much younger age. But um, there's not this sense of distress, emotional distress that there is in the West. On the other hand, life is hard. Um, They're really hard. And so for some people, and I would say especially for women, uh, it's almost like being a, uh, a slave. You know, women, women, there's a wonderful, wonderful video about um, the washing machine and the extent to which the washing machine has maybe done more to liberate women than all of feminism. Um, Hans Rosling has something like that. You know, it's a provocative way to think about it, but uh, washing clothes by hand is a lot of work. And especially if you have to gather the water and make your own soap and you know, and babies, I mean, babies are dirty, filthy creatures if you don't have modern laundry. Really gross. And, and so, you know, when we say how grateful, we have a lot to be grateful for. And so my approach is, you know, look, any of us who have the comforts that we all have in the developed world, or most of us, obviously, they're homeless and people in dysfunction and chronic poverty and so forth. But easily 90% of us in the United States have lives that are so much better um, physically and materially than most people in Senegal do. It's, it's no brainer. That said, the, the emotional distress issue is real and huge. And as a consequence Instead of kind of looking back and saying, oh, we should have stayed there, that's just not realistic. Um, instead, I'm very interested in this going forward. How do we create healthier, more positive cultures going forward? And actually, I think a lot of us are living that. I, I mean, I, I have a pretty nice life. I enjoy most of what I do most of the time. And I could be stressed and freaked out and so forth about this and that. There are always things to be stressed and freaked out about if you want to. But, um, you know... A lot of people, if they choose not to be in a rat race, if they choose meaningful work, if they choose positive relationships, they can live a really wonderful life. So when people talk about, um, you know, all the rat race and the horrors and everything, you know, I, I know people who go and, you know, live in a house in the middle of nowhere and you can live cheaply in the middle of nowhere and grow a garden and, you know, work a few hours a week and have a wonderful life. Um if you are very deliberate and strategic, you do not have to be stressed in the modern world. It's all a matter of, again, frugality. People in Senegal you know, live average dollar a day and so forth. You can't quite do that here, but you could live really frugally and simply. I've known people that have gone off the grid and lived on nothing. And I can imagine doing that. You know, if I get sick of it, maybe I'll go off the grid and live for a few years. But these are life choices we have. Um, I, I guess this is part of agency and identity. It's for people who feel stuck in the rat race. Hello, let's start making decisions to get you out of it. It's not magic. 
It may take time if people have a huge mortgage and certain kind of social expectations. Okay, let's start to unwind that. But I feel as if there's a substantial cohort of people that are living pretty nice, purpose-driven, experience-based lives. You know, it's not too esoteric. You may not like this or that flavor of their lives. Maybe you don't want to be off the grid. Maybe you like Costa Rica. Um, Okay, whatever. You know, but there are lots of cool options. And uh, I think most people if they are really committed to developing happiness and well-being for themselves. And that, may, that commitment may include um, freaking out their parents or their aunts and uncles or their classmates or, oh, I went to a fancy college and now I'm a midwife? Yeah, so that's if I, if I want to be a midwife, I'm going to be happy being a midwife. I don't care about the college degree. I think we just need to have more people that are unambiguously committed to quality of life and for that to be a thing, more of a thing. Mm. Yeah, it seems as though part of the obstacle to that is that when we are evaluating how well off we are, again, it goes back to this issue of looking to the people around you, you know, how, how rich are the people within arm's reach? How happy are the people that I know? And so we're not, you know, we're not, we're not seeing it with a, you know, a a sober estimation this sense of, you know, I know, know people that are fabulously wealthy, but mm-hmm. are still seeing themselves as the sort of like scrappy up and coming person that has like snuck their way into the business world. And, and now they're surrounded by people with 10 times as much wealth as they are, they have, and they think they're being frugal, but it's like, you know, completely opulent. And I don't know, it seems to me as though part of it must be like for people to really take, you know, that's that objective sort of sober appraisal and and to to marshal the courage to distinguish themselves from the expectations of their surround that we have to draw a bigger circle than we've been drawing. Well, and that's partly why I talk about subcultures all the time. There's a little cliche of we are an average of the five people we spend the most time with. I have been with five people drink beer. I'll go out and drink beer at six every night. Or I've been around people who wake up at five and do yoga every day, and I'll be sad. You know, and I'm pretty independent. Um, so I think we need to be a lot more deliberate about the subcultures that we – and to realize there are lots of subcultures. A lot of times I realize that I read um, these things about U.S. culture as if it's this monolith. And maybe it is. I mean, one of the reasons I like the West of the U.S. better than the East is East seems a lot more convention-driven and, you know, status quo-driven. Where I don't know, I've, I've lived most of my life in places like Santa Fe and Austin and San Francisco. In Alaska, I lived in a little hippie town called Homer, Alaska. And I graduated from high school in Aspen, where it was still kind of counterculture before it became wealthy. You know, and there are lots of these places where you can find different kinds of people. You know, just in the world of education, even if one knows nothing, most people know well, there's Montessori and Waldorf, and that's somehow a little bit different. And I would say even those Montessori and Waldorf schools are subcultures where you can go and find people that are different. You know, I, I think in some ways yoga is the best example, where now there are yoga communities everywhere, and it has become almost like the competitive gym. It's sort of like a gold's gym now. <laughs> but I think one doesn't have to dig too deeply in the yoga world to find a little bit more meaning-based yoga. Um, but I, w- I would say anybody who's having a hard time, I, I like what you said about for a lot of people, it's courage. And it's a matter of who do I disappoint and how much am I sacrificing my soul right now by trying to avoid disappointing X, Y, and Z. And I think the more, I think it needs to be a conscious calculation. Say, well, I would really like to live a life that looked like this. And these are the people that would freak out or would criticize or I would disappoint or whatever. And if one chooses to stay embedded in the stressful life, then at least it's a conscious decision uh, driven by one's own identity and agency. Oh, I don't want to be stuck in this life in the suburbs with a job I hate, but I don't want to disappoint these 10 people. Therefore, I'm going to continue, even at a cost of my physical health, mental and emotional health, I'm going to continue this life and, you know, die at 70 because of chronic diseases. I'm being harsh, but you know what I mean? That is, I actually think once more people start talking out loud about these kinds of decisions, I suspect large numbers of them would begin taking steps. Again, it's a gradual thing, uh, but they would begin taking steps. And we already see it. Uh, There are estimates that 
one third of uh, U.S. consumers are cultural creatives, which means that there are meaning-based decisions and at least some of their consumption decisions. And that's a very low bar. You know, maybe it means they buy a product that has, is described as green every once in a while, whatever. <laughs> but they're they're trying. They're going beyond the uh, conventional boxes a little bit, and they're looking for something else. Um, because you know, of the worlds I travel in, I know a lot of mid-career professionals. They get to forty or fifty, they've made enough money, and they want to devote the rest of their life to meaning. And, uh, you know, I don't have any hard statistics on what percentage of the population are there, but I think we live in a golden age of people retiring early and devoting the rest of their life to meaning. And as this becomes more of a valid path, maybe we need to have a club. Uh, I dropped out and had fun with life. I mean, you know, and then there are practical issues, too. When, when you're raising kids, you know, you need to earn enough money to take care of the kids. So I think it's all a matter of um, helping people separate and have more valid communities Again, I, I like what you said about the authority there. Certain people regard the mainstream as some kind of authority. For me, it's just like it's all bullshit. And you know, once <laughs> you get rid of that, then okay, then you have radical freedom in terms of where you go, and it's just you know choices. Well, can we do a little story time? Can can sure. I ask uh, how you came to this in your own life? How you came to did you did you hit the floor? believing that the mainstream was bullshit or was it something that came to you gradually? I, I think I was, I was blessed. I think, you know, my grandfather who's been dead for a while was known for not particularly wanting to play with toys as he was a little kid. And, um, you know, and that's pretty unusual for kids. You know, all, everybody, he didn't even want to play with toys. So I think I've always had, uh, and maybe even a little bit of that genetic inheritance, just, you know, serious about purpose sort of thing. And he was very serious about purpose. Um, you know, and, and the other thing is my parents were uneducated and I happen in probably escapism. I, uh, I got into reading. Uh, my father was actually violent. And so, so it was literally escaping from violence to go read in my bedroom. But, um, you know, my parents had no expectations. So when I, uh, when I got to Harvard and you know, I had good test scores, my school said you should go to Harvard. So I went to Harvard. My parents, all they knew was I was going to college back east somewhere. So um, my mother discovered 20 years later when my half-sister went to college that, oh, Harvard was hard to get into. It's quite possible my father is still not aware of that. And when I compare that background to so many people who feel such heavy, heavy expectations from their parents, basically my parents had zero expectations. And they were just, my mom was 16 when I was born and my dad was 18 and, you know, they were young young parents just trying to, working class people trying to live a life. Um, and so I, I happen to be free. I, I'm remarkably free. Um, so when I talk about people um, having to break relationships with maybe their parents or disappoint, I had a head start in that respect because I was relatively free from that whole set of expectations. And uh, you know, once I was off as an educated person, kind of with no family expectations around me, then I was totally free to just kind of go wherever. And I've already always had kind of uh, an explorer, you know, exploring spirit. Um, and then again, I I think it's fortunate I, you know, lived in the West, graduated from high school in Aspen, went to St. John's Santa Fe. Santa Fe is very counterculture, and everywhere I've been, I've been attracted to these counterculture. And I I think I it, I'm. I don't realize how unusual it is to have lived in these places. I think of places like Austin, Santa Fe, San Francisco as normal, whereas uh, they probably, you know, they're the outliers. And so there are, you know, millions, tens of millions of people in New York and Massachusetts and Indiana that uh, are suffering from a social conformism that I barely, barely am aware of. So you've been a part of the genesis of a number of schools you have you know you've trained educators you've written books on this and i'm curious what are some of the indicators or like the tools perhaps when when you're seeing somebody have this developmental revelation when when they come into their own in this way when they find a self-possession and a and a peace with the this relocating the center of sovereignty within themselves like how do people how do you see people getting there and like and what seems to be 
helpful in terms of their dis- personal disposition or the structure of their environment to like assist in this? That's a great question. I would say, again, one of the reasons that I conceptualized um, the Socratic as a Socratic practice, um, you know, day in, day out in the habit of it is when I first start leading a discussion with students, very often they're surprised and there's a period where it takes uh, some time to gain trust where they're surprised that I will let them have their thoughts, have their own thoughts, which sounds strange. But when you think about it, school is all about the teacher stuffing his or her thoughts into the kid's head or the curriculum. And that's what school is about is, you know, if I ask you a question about what are the causes of the Civil War, I have an answer from the history textbook that needs to go in your head and you need to spit that answer out on a test And then I will validate you by giving you an A to say, you're a good boy because you gave me the answer that I told you to give me. You know, and it's just so for me personally, it's a repulsive, repulsive human interaction that I think if any of us went to a social event and we were treated as a teacher treats a student, we would basically be offended. Like, fuck you, asshole. Get out of here. (laughs) But that's what that's how teachers teach. You know, most teachers interact with most students most of the time for years of schooling. And so in terms of liberating them, you know, I ask them a question and then, you know, totally authentic. What do you think? And, you know, and it takes a while to build trust because they think, is he playing a game? At some point, is he going to kind of put on the thumb screws and say, aha, no, you have to say this. Gotcha. Um, yeah. You know, and occasionally, because uh, kids kids are really, teens are really fascinated about the world, and they wonder about a lot of things. If you start talking about, you know, sex, drugs, religion, you know, hierarchy, dominance, all sorts of things, um, you know, they may ask questions that are uncomfortable or express opinions that are uncomfortable or inappropriate or whatever. And I might say, you know, I can't have certain conversations with adolescents in America because, you know, it's, it's not established. So I'll say, you know, well, we can't talk about that right now. But, uh, you know, I respect your, your curiosity about it. And I say, you know, go research, go think. But I'll go pretty far in terms of, um, you know, if somebody, you know, I've had students say that they think the human race is evil and most of us should be killed. Okay. Um, so how, how do you want to go about that? <laughs> how do we get to pick which ones live and which ones die? You know, just totally authentically curious and uh, really drawing them out. And usually, I have, I have great trust in the process. I think most of the time, if we extrapolate even what seem to be pretty nasty beliefs, um, most of the time, they become tamed. Uh, and, and so that builds a lot of trust when students see that I'm really going to let them you know, say what they want to say as long as they're not rude to each other, think what they're going to think. You know, I might, I'll be very bones, bare bones about, you know, if they talk about something that, you know, is not really related to what we're supposed to be. And part of what I do is frame it. We read difficult articles. And so if we are completely out of the article for a long time, I might say, you know, look, um, because this is a school, we need to learn how to read more difficult materials. We should come back and connect it. You know, no rush, but we do need to do this over time. Do you see why? Does it make sense? Um, you know, I go through exactly, you know, your parents expecting this. And so it, it's not about me manipulating them. I'm just, hey, guys, this is a situation. Um, you know, if you want to go and do this outside of school, totally cool. And, and a lot of it is treating them like humans. A, a lot of kids at the schools I create just feel like they've been treated more like humans than they are normally. And what that does is that, again, identity and agency. If you are treated as, if you're a human um, where you can make your own decisions authentically in real time, and you can develop your own identity authentically in real time. It's very empowering. And then once they also see that, you know, we're trying to develop a culture where peer-to-peer that's happening too. So we don't want some peers to shut down other peers. It's like, wait, wait, um, she had something to say. What are you saying? Or, you know, wait, he's he, you may not like his beliefs, but let's hear him. You know, once we sort of model this, let's get it out there. Then uh, very often they become excited about this possibility of, you know, authentic human engagement. It's a natural appetite. I had Hunter Motts on the show. He was the, uh, the co-author of Straight A Conspiracy, and he has a lot of the same the same criticisms of education that you do. And and his uh, his podcast Mixed Mental Arts is looking at how we are going to reconstruct education in a world where we have this total glut of information that the experts themselves are now at a loss to try and track and integrate. And it sounds 
you know, and it, part part of what I feel comes up again and again in my communications with people is how the the boundaries between the disciplines are themselves being interrogated right now. The the constructs of this belongs in physics, this belongs in biology is is under question as it as it, you know as it should be, and that part of part of what is being emulsified in this transition right now are the the uh, sort of classical subjects you know of reading you know, writing big, and arithmetic big, big time and, and even just just very concretely so I, I want to i want to scale innovative education um you know in, in public schools they're way too regulated and controlled impossible in private schools back in the east they're more regulated than out west pretty free out west but even um, there, the accreditation, which is you know an independent private thing, in order to be an accredited school, the accreditation agencies want to know what your ninth grade history curriculum is. So in terms of your comment on the disciplines, as soon as we start talking about a ninth grade history curriculum, we are no longer exploring ideas. Um, you know, in the Socratic Humanities course that is a feature of my school's, um, you know, we occasionally do read math, physics, biology, and so it's not strictly humanities, certainly social sciences, but I like to have a diverse curriculum, and students like it too, where we might read literature one week, and then some religion, and then some philosophy, some psychology, and you know, do some math, or, you know, artificial intelligence, something like that, because kids are rapidly curious, and they want to make sense of the whole thing. Um, where are we are sense-making uh, organisms where we want to understand. And I think for each of us, we'll have a different piece where, you know, you might say something and I might say, but what about that? But somebody sitting next to me might say, well, I don't care about that, but what about that other thing he said? And in order, people love to talk about, oh, we need to support curiosity, blah, blah, blah. The implication of supporting curiosity is pretty unstructured because people will go in lots of different directions. You know, I think simply to, to meet, we have to have something in common. Um, so we need to, you know, if a group of, say, 10 of us are going to meet on a regular basis, are we coming to shout at each other? Are we coming to build furniture? Are we coming to read a book and talk about it? You know, whatever it is. But um, once there, we, we need to allow for a lot of freedom within, within the, the boundaries of whatever it is. And so I see a lot of the next stage of education is completely dumping all of the existing stuff, but still we'll have uh, different educational entrepreneurs, so to speak, providing different uh, vehicles or vessels or curating different kinds of experiences. And then, you know, each of us can be drawn to different kinds of curated experiences within which we can be curious and original and creative within those boundaries. This sounds so awesome, but the part of me that remains a noob illiterate to, you know, alternative education, which I think is probably most of us right now, have, has to ask, but how do you evaluate and track their success? How do you, like, what, you know, like, God, this sounds like such a wonderful, like, system in which to grow up as a young person, but then, like... You know, how do you interface with these systems of accreditation? You know, how do you how do you demonstrate your merit to the you know the finite game of university applications, et cetera? No, no, that's a good question. So, um, and university applications is a constraint. So, our strategy for university admissions is threefold: um, great SAT scores, a few great AP scores, and then projects. And what's interesting about that, and a lot of alternative education people want to be much more free than that, um, but I think in order for this to win, we have to win at the elite university admissions game. And I know a lot of brilliant homeschoolers and unschoolers who have gotten into Harvard and MIT and Stanford and whatnot and done really well. Um, I, had a, I have a student at one of my schools just got into Bennington and Bard, some of the top liberal arts colleges. So going back to the details, since you're nuts and bolts, SAT, most alternative people hate the SAT. I see the SAT verbal as just a reading test. If you can read and discuss, you know, Plato or Boober or James Baldwin, you can score well on the SAT. You know, it's a really serious reading test. You need to be able to read difficult, diverse material and, you know, analyze it carefully. But if you're a great reader, SAT is piece of cake. And what we do is we read and talk about ideas all the time. 
SAT math is a little bit different. Not all students will spontaneously develop that kind of ability, but it is much more about thinking um, creatively about how to solve different problems. George Polya, who wrote a book called How to Solve It, he was a great Hungarian mathematician, said he'd rather have a student solve one problem five different ways than five different problems the same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so you want to get minds sort of thinking, actively thinking. And if they get good at actively thinking about math problem solving, and we also have a math problem solving course, then, then they'll do fine on the math SAT. The AP courses, those are a ton of traditional content for the most part. But if you only take three or four years, suppose you take four AP courses over four years of high school, one regular course a year, not a big deal. But then beyond that, spectacular projects. So, um, you know, in terms of college admissions, people don't realize this. But when I went to Harvard, the kid with the lowest SAT scores in my class had been elected mayor of a small town in Michigan at the age of 18. If you can do that, nobody cares about your SAT scores. Uh, Cal Newport, who wrote a book called How to Be a High School Superstar, said Harvard wants uh, Bob Dylan with great SAT scores. They want bright, original people. I knew somebody on the Harvard Admissions Committee where they she selected for admissions a young person who dropped out of high school, joined a Buddhist monastery, and came back because he was interesting. You know, he clearly was purpose-driven. Um, so our students, we've had students who, have a student who started a heavy metal rock band promotion where he uh, actually books bands in venues, sells tickets, and makes money at it at the age of 16. And one of the candidates for my school in San Francisco that I'm starting has at the in 10th grade, he is working for a startup as a full-time software developer, and uh, his company just hired a Columbia University CS grad, and the 10th grader is managing the Columbia University graduate. You know, and so there are cool teens doing cool things all over the place. And this is more alignment. You know, in, in traditional societies, the age of 13, you're grown up. Um, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Edison, you know, all these people, Andrew Carnegie, started their lives at the age of 13. You know, if you, as a 13-year-old, really start doing something, you can be amazing by the time you're 17 or 18. And so uh, college admissions, few grade SAT scores, a few grade AP courses, great SAT scores, spectacular project, and the, but the project is the bulk of your adolescent experience. And so you do have the academic training to compete with best of them, if that's what you want, um, and then the project. And then finally... Some of our students, sometimes I describe this, our students as about one-third intellectual, one-third entrepreneurial, one-third creatives. The entrepreneurs sometimes just go right into the, you know, creating companies, forget, forget college. With the creatives, I'm a great believer that 21st century is a golden age of creatives. Um, you can still be a poor, starving artist, but if you can learn your, use your creative abilities in the um, commercial world, you know, UX design or product design, industrial design, you know, uh, all sorts of uh, graphic design, all sorts of visual, you know, video production, that sort of, those sorts of skills are really valuable if you're good at what you do and are extremely professional. So some of our creatives go great right into the workforce. In other cases, they'll go to art school, design school, film school, and for those sorts of institutions, a portfolio is much more important than academics anyway. So if you're a 14 and you're a brilliant creative, we may not have you do a whole bunch of math. If you're, meanwhile, you know, rocking it on the creative side, let's let's get you to be a world-class professional by the time you're 17 or 18. Um, and I, th- I think allowing kids to do those sorts of um, alternative paths, if you will, but also, you know, in the in a certain sec- the startup sector, uh, these are not so alternative anymore. And so in some ways, I'm used to kind of the alternative Austin, San Francisco, but it's also the startup. And I think there's not a... It's so not a coincidence that the startup culture was seated in places that are highly original. Once saw a good uh, documentary in Silicon Valley that said, you know, the 1849ers, the gold rush, and all the, you know, prostitution and gambling in San Francisco, the late 19th century, in part gave it its craziness, which led to the 60s and, uh, you know, Haight-Ashbury and all the craziness there. And it's not an accident that Silicon Valley was founded in a place that had a lot of radical cultural openness. So I see the startup culture is deeply aligned with the, um, you know, let's be ourselves and let's do our own thing. And that's the future. Yeah, there's the, this Silicon Valley coverage by Forbes on their underground proliferation of microdosing, the encouragement of you know, discursive, you know, nonlinear, creative thinking. Well, we're coming up, we're, we're on an hour here. So I'd, I'd like to tie a bow on this with you. 
I like to end these these episodes typically by inviting you to answer a two part question. Mm-hmm. And the, the first part is sort of if you understand this this recording and then in a broader sense this life as happening with you know in the light of the audience of the future or sort of like if if you're aware that the actions of your life and the, you know the things that we've discussed here are being observed are being understood you know n- interpreted considered does that change the way that you think or or do you already think that way and if so how does that inform you your life and activity. And then the second part of that is if you could send a message into the future to a future version of yourself or, or whatever, what would that message be or that question? Yeah. So, um, you know, I very much think in the future and I feel like, you know, I hope the future that I believe in exists. I, I want to acknowledge that it could be, you know, nuclear war is a possibility. It could be that we'll have a horrible nuclear war in the next five, 10, 20 years, and it'll destroy everything. And so I can't promise anybody that the future is going to be benign and good. That said, I think our best hope for creating a future that is benign and good is for people to get out of their immediate pain, anger, hatred, limitation, and think expansively about possibility and to nurture that best part of themselves that uh, is is open in new ways and uh, and wants to create a better, a better world, not in a dogmatic, preaching, aggressive way, but in a lot of ways by exemplifying it. So, you know, I, I think when I look back, when I think of history, I'm not terribly interested in political history, World War One, World War Two, blah 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 blah. I'm really interested in the history of um, innovation, uh, independent thought, entrepreneurship. Um, you know, the people the people that really changed the world by means of doing something new and different. And very often it was, it was extremely lonely and, and strange initially. And so I, I, want, I want people now to be open to things that may seem strange and marginal with the understanding that these things evolve in all sorts of ways and let's, let's be generous towards them. So kind of going forward, you know, I would hope and expect that if the future does allow these beautiful, strange aesthetics to subcultures to grow and develop, that at least I was in tune with these possibilities, even if I may personally have been on the right, may not have been on the right, riding the right uh, wave, so to speak. <laughs> well, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Where, where can people link up with you and your work? Yeah, so um, I'm founding a new school in San Francisco, the Academy of Thought and Industry, and so they can certainly contact me through that. I also have a website, uh, Radical Social Entrepreneurs. I'm a great believer in being a radical social entrepreneur. And um, they can also follow me on Facebook. My wife, Magat Wade, is a beautiful, dark-skinned Senegalese woman, so there are many Michael Strongs out here. But I'm the only one uh, that happens to be married to, I, as far as I know, a beautiful Senegalese woman. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us on the show today. Thanks, Michael. Take care. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod Network, along with Third Eye Drops, The Astral Hustle, Synchronicity Podcast, and an oodle of other fascinating programs. I encourage you to go to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all. And stay tuned because we have some awesome episodes coming up on future fossils. But for now, may your now be exquisite, long, and wonderful.